Socialize with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today, we hear from Professor Maya Matarik about socially assistive robotics, which focus on assisting people through social interaction. Professor Matarik, among other roles, is a founding director of the Robotics and Autonomous Systems Center at the University of Southern California. Her research is aimed at endowing robots with the ability to help people, especially those with special needs. In the Interaction Lab, her team combines expertise from the fields of computer science, engineering and human studies to develop socially assistive robots that can offer long-term personalized support to help parents, caregivers and clinicians who look after vulnerable children, relatives or patients. Professor Matarik also passionately promotes interdisciplinary engineering research and careers in STEM to various audiences, including students and teachers, the media and policymakers. Our interviewer, Audrey, spoke to her about the care gap in healthcare, how socially assistive robotics relates to psychology and about opportunities for entrepreneurship. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Would you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Maya Matarik. I'm a professor of computer science, neuroscience, and pediatrics at the University of Southern California. I'm also the chief science officer at Embodied. Very good. Would you tell me what motivates your work? Well, I've been a roboticist for many decades, and uh, initially my work was motivated by the fact that I could actually do computing in the physical world. And back then, um, there wasn't all all that much of it going on. Now, of course, there's so many motivations to be to do robotics, and the real motivation now is to really get robots out in the real world, truly helping people, as opposed to maybe all of the other possible applications for robotics. Mm-hmm. So, I'd like to learn a little bit about this care gap that you mentioned in the presentation at IROS. Would you tell me about it? So, I think it's impossible to uh, be awake today in 2017 and not see the incredible gap between the needs that people have, uh, whether it's uh, the elderly, which is obvious to everybody, but really across the age span. We have a rise in so many different conditions that require one-on-one care. And at the same time, we have a decline in both the economics that can support providing care um, and maybe the, the will to, to provide the, the support for it. So, so it's an incredibly opportune time to make a difference, but it's not clear that, that the te- technologies being developed are actually being targeted towards what people need. So I see this care gap as both a great need and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so how does technology fit in? Well, so whenever we have people who need literally hours of care per day, um, we need something other than just hours of human care. And technology can step in and help there. But I guess what we're seeing, instead of technologies being developed specifically for what people actually need, we're seeing a lot of um, technology push, things being developed because they're cool and fun and let's see if we can do it, as opposed to actually understanding what people need. So it's interesting because we're coming to a point where 
we can put robots together with people in non-trivial, challenging ways, and yet we're not really understanding what people need. And you can look at that from a perspective of a company, right? You can say, well, it's understanding your market. It's understanding what your product should be. Or you can look at it from the perspective of research and say, what are the real problems we should be addressing, as opposed to maybe problems that are very publishable or cool or build incrementally of what we already know how to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so tell me a bit about what socially assistive robotics are and then how they fit so, so socially assistive robotics is a field um, that I'm very honored to have started uh, about 15 years ago. It was named by David Filecipher, who is a former PhD student of mine and now is a professor at University of Nevada, Reno. So he managed to coin the term that actually stuck. There were other buzzwords that, that were milling around like um, – assistive interactive robots and, you know, things like social interactive robots and so on. But we, we got one that stuck. But the thing that's important about the term is that social robotics is, it exists and it's existed a bit longer than socially assistive robotics. And it really is focused on how robots can interact with people socially. But it isn't focused on any one particular um, end. So it isn't it's, it's not about reaching goals. It's really about engaging the human. What's interesting about assistive in general, assistive technologies, assistive robotics included, is helping people reach their goals. So this, I think, creates a really interesting niche for robotics because typically robotics is about having robots achieve their goals. But now imagine this indirection where the robot's goal is to help the person achieve a goal, which is really hard, like having a stroke patient do some really depressing, demoralizing, repetitive rehab exercise, or having a, a child with autism make more eye contact when it's very difficult and unnatural for them, or any number of things like that. So that's what that niche of socially assistive is. It's using social means to do assistive help to people to reach their goals. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me more about this motivation? So the idea is you want robots to help motivate people. Why, why robots? So we can all agree that motivation is critical to every success. So, you know, whether it's learning a new skill, training, you know, social interactions, uh, health, everything is about motivation. If people are motivated, you know, studies show that they will do more of what they need to do, do it more willingly, enjoy it more and, and you know, be healthy, live longer, you name it. Um, and so how do we get people motivated? Well, you know, we have coaches, we have life coaches, we have motivational speakers, you know, what is what is out there? But it's mostly not there for all of these really hard contexts like rehab and so on. And so why would we have robots do that? Well, the reason that we would is based in neuroscience. So, you know, people are animals and we're wired based through all of the evolutionary process to be first sort of responsive to our environment at a very fundamental level and then to be responsive to our social environment. And so we're wired to respond to others and to be affected by others and influenced by others in a very profound way. So if you look at the literature on, for example, what drives human behavior change, you see that social factors are some of the most effective, if not the only effective thing. So to get people to lose weight, um, short of stapling their stomach, bariatric surgery is very effective. The only other thing that's really effective is social commitment of some kind, such as, well, you know, if, if I tell a bunch of people that I'm gonna lose weight, then I'm much more likely to lose weight because there's that social pressure, expectation, commitment. Or if I commit to give money to a cause that I really, really don't believe in, if I don't lose weight, that also works very effectively. It's another goals, yes. Exactly. But all of these nudges come from, and strategies all come from a very socially rooted fundamental place, right? So 
So behavior change is socially mediated. And now if you want that to be done through technology, you need a, a social embodied technology. And that, again, gets back to neuroscience. So if we look at brain scans of people interacting with computers versus robots you, versus people, what we see is the brain is much more similar in interactions between people and robots than it is with screens. There's just um, different, different amounts and different pervasion of activation for screen-based interactions. So we need to leverage that wiring that we have as social creatures. Hmm. More than if, say, I was watching a 3D rendering of a robot on a screen? Yeah, 3D rendering won't do it. What might do it is really, really immersive, well-done virtual reality. So there, are, there is now evidence from, again, uh, brain scans to show that you can fool, if you will, the brain by immersing someone in a really full interaction um, in, in virtual reality. So that is very effective. The reason that that doesn't, in my mind, scale as well, however, is that by putting people in a virtual setup, you're taking them out of the world that they're in. And a vast majority of rehab or convalescence or behavior change is about things one has to do in this world, in this you know physical world, like activities of daily life or interacting with other people. So it's difficult to do that physically while you're in a virtual world. So the virtual world is very relevant to some kinds of training and recovery, but it's not clear that it generalizes to as much as you could do with a physically co-present agent. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a promise for other kinds of hybrid technologies that I'm sure are coming up in the future, such as, you know, some AR with robotics that we're also exploring, um, and then also some VR, light, you know, so a yeah. lot of stuff is going to come up in the future. I'm really looking forward to it, like very near future. Cool. Okay, so just to make sure I have this correct, we're using robots or VR, but focusing on robots for now, because they push buttons that we have hardwired in us through neuroscience for social cues that motivate us to do things, right? That's perfect. Okay. And so can you give me an idea of what this actually looks like? Like what are some so, examples? Yeah. So socially assisted robotics is again about creating physical robots that interact with people without doing physical work. So for example, um, in our work, we have, uh, we have had, we've developed robots that interact with children with autism. And they help to motivate children to do more social, to engage in more social behaviors, such as initiating play, making eye contact, social referencing, pointing to things. So by the robot merely being there and acting in a social way, in a way that responds to the child, we get higher levels of social behavior and retention of social skill than we do through other means. So that's one example. Another, maybe even simpler example is um, stroke patients who need to do activities of daily life with their stroke affected limb or body part, um, that's very demoralizing because basically, you know, they look disabled. So it's much easier to compensate with the other part of the body, which then results in people not recovering. So how do you motivate people to do this really kind of, um, stigmatizing, depressing thing? Well, having a robot nearby that can provide praise and challenge is the kind of thing that actually changes behavior effectively. So basically creating machines that will be there as social companions that will motivate and encourage. Of course, once we start talking about creating machines that are in our social context, then a, a lot of questions come up about the form and the behavior of those machines. And that, that's where the real field is. It's how, you know, how should these things be embodied? 
How should they interact with people? How should they adapt over time, learn about the user? So there's no shortage of really profound research questions. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so just, um, I, I just want to imagine it a little bit more concretely with this. If, can you kind of paint a picture? So a subject walks into a room, we can give her him or her a name, and then just could you describe what it looks like in interaction? Yeah, I don't actually want to think about subjects walking into the room. I really want to think about real people in their homes and, you know, their other contexts. So you can imagine um, a child comes home from um, a special needs school um, and, you know, there's a robot there to encourage them to play socially, something mm -hmm. that they that person wouldn't do because they're on the spectrum and they would just go in and, and play with their iPad. Um, and unfortunately, increasingly today, all children will just go and play with their iPad and will not actually do face-to-face -face interactions and social training. Um, so you can imagine how this could help everyone, not just uh, children on the spectrum. Um, another example is how how can a stroke patient, let's say an elderly person, although mind you, stroke now affects people in their 40s as well, mm -hmm. um, how can this elderly person be motivated in their home when no one else is around to use their disabled limb to, let's say, reach for, you know, the cereal or reach for things in the kitchen to make breakfast? Um, they're not going to do it on their own because it's inefficient and demoralizing. But if they have their buddy in the home that says, hey, you know, I know it's kind of a pain, but come on, you promised me that you would do this. Or, you know, let's let's play a game and let's see if you can do a few more. Like if you do this, then, you know, we'll, we'll call up your cousin or something like that. So. There are a whole bunch of different motivational techniques that the robot can use, but it really boils down to being in the lives of people who need this kind of help. So it's a companionship. It's a, it's a role that kind of matches companionship and coaching um, and motivation all together in one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, would you tell me a bit about the research of this? So you mentioned that form and interaction, these are open research questions. Right. So there's no end to research questions in this context. So um, one question we can ask is this this question of the robot. Is, it's a robot, right? So it has a physical body. So how should how should it move physically and behave in all of these back channel ways in order to engage the user, not turn them off, etc. So beyond safety, right? Of course, they, the robots have to be safe. But then what? Um, it turns out everything matters. I had a, a graduate student, Ross Mead, who recently graduated, whose entire dissertation was on proxemics, which is the social use of space. So how close do you get to someone? How do you orient? How loudly do you speak? How much do you gesture, depending on the relationship that you have and the environment and the noise in the environment and whether there are others or not? So that in itself is a research challenge. And he did a really nice job of learning models and finding sort of what is the ideal place? And then the next step would be, how do you adapt if the person is, for example, short of hearing? Um, this happens, this comes up in, in real life, right? So people who can't hear very well also tend to yell very loudly, which makes people move away from them. And then they get closer and yell some more because when people move away, they can't hear them. So these kinds of social dynamics occur and they can be controlled more readily and studied more readily with machines. Um, so that's one example. Another example, so embodied communication is a giant field. How do you use back-channel information? How do you express emotion with the robot in a way that is not, that doesn't fall in the uncanny valley where it mm -hmm. over-promises and yet is engaging enough to the person? How, how repeatable should it be? How much variety do you need? How unexpected should it be so that it's both dependable yet not boring? Mm -hmm. um, then there's the entire field of... Uh, 
influence and how do you influence someone and what are these strategies that the robot can use? And we have looked at modeling personality, matching the personality of the user to the robot, um, modeling things like um, motivation at some level, things like reciprocity, taking turns, um, all kinds of things that are just like, let's just say taking turns. That's incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. Um, Who talks when? What eye contact do you make? How do you hand off? Um, you know, how do you not monopolize the conversational floor? Um, all of these things. Um, another thing, of course, just to kind of open up the can of worms is, of course, machine learning and user adaptation. So how can the robot use machine learning in order to continue to improve at what it does? Because no robot is going to be perfect for each individual user. But also, how can it remain interesting over time, which is really the challenge, right? Because the person will at different times be tired, be happy, be unhappy. There will be a lot of hidden state as to what else is going on in the person's life that the robot will not have access to and yet must act in a way that is consistent with what that user needs every day as they change, get older, get better, get worse, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. So those are some of the massive open questions in the field. And I think some of the most challenging ones because it's really quite different from what people are doing right now in machine learning. A lot of the vast majority of machine learning is very focused on very, very specific, very narrow capabilities. And it's very effective. But interacting with people is anything but that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing that I find very interesting about this is it seems like psychology is about predicting human behavior. Whereas this is um, socially assistive robotics seems more about control in a sense. It seems like we're taking what we learn and we project it out to influence a human or whoever we're interacting with. Do you think it's fair to say? Well, I don't like to think about the robots controlling people because that that just seems to go down the wrong road. I'm just using terminology Um, from reinforcement learning. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you can think of it as, the robot can always model it using some framework like that, but I think what's really happening is you're really training the person to find their own reinforcers. Um, maybe that reinforcer is related to something that the robot will say and do, right? So you find this kind of dynamic that works. But it's really about finding the dynamic between the the robot and the person. Um, But you're absolutely right that um, there's a lot of really relevant work in psychology Mm -hmm. um, about what motivates people, about, you know, what drives people that that needs to be brought to bear here. And it's hard. I find my students read a lot of psychology, but then there aren't any really quantified models, right? So you end up having to kind of come up with how you model some phenomenon and then get a bunch of data, which is difficult, right? Because finding the right populations and engaging them in, in natural interactions is also non-trivial. Mm-hmm. But I think these are the problems worth working on. Gotcha. So, so what I'd like to do is kind of dig into some of the problems or maybe an example of some research that you're doing. One that, one that I found interesting was how you speak with humans, how you give them different feedback, how you keep it engaging. Um, when, right. Say there's a robot coach coaching someone in an exercise. Would you tell me a bit about this? So I think, you know, a huge amount of work is now going into um, conversational agents generally. And I think it's important to kind of think about this distinction between what happens with conversational agents in general, which is a nice and interesting challenge, to what happens with a personalized conversational agent and one that is embodied. So first of all, there's there's this whole issue of syncing what the person says, or rather what the robot says, and how the body behavior, body language conveys the same message, reinforces that message, or maybe blurs that message, depending on what it is. Like you could say something um, 
pretty harsh, but your body language can make it milder or vice versa. Um, these are all things that are related to embodiment and are powerful tools that don't relate to conversational agents that come out of a, a speaker alone. to consider in a sense. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, but definitely to your question about how do you kind of keep the person engaged? I think right now um, the models are very simple, right? Because you might have some kind of a randomized distribution of like, you know, it uses the person's name with this frequency or, you know, it throws in a joke with that frequency based on, you know, what kind of jokes they've liked before, et cetera. Um, but I think the more profound models have to do really with, you know, things, understanding things like the user's personality, much more about the context that the interaction is happening in. And, and contextual stuff is really hard because, of course, you know, hidden state and how mm -hmm. much the, does the system know. But there, too, the embodiment is really important because, again, if you're um, – a speaker and a microphone, that's just a very different prospect from something that really can move around and engage and get that dynamic going. I guess the key point about human-robot interaction really is that you have a dynamic that the robot can influence. Mm -hmm. If you're merely a passive agent and you're only interacting verbally, that's powerful, but not nearly as powerful and rich as multimodal embodied communication. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting with the robot interaction. And there's a lot of Little things. Uh, one thing you mentioned in your talk at IROS is you can't have a person or you can't have a robot be multiple roles to a person. And right. Because it kind of breaks the context that we have for the robot. Or I, Exactly. So because we're loaded as, as uh, socially evolved entities, uh, we make all kinds of first impressions and, and form kind of, if you will, um, personas for everyone we interact with, human or robot as well, because we map robots onto, you know, how our circuitly works for, for people. And so we form a model of someone. And if their behavior is, is grossly inconsistent over time, that's very, very unpleasant. People dislike that strongly. And of course, there are human um, conditions such as schizophrenia, for example, that might cause or bipolar disorder that might cause people to act in such inconsistent ways. Um, and people don't deal with it very well at all. So the idea that we would create agents that are going to change their personalities suddenly or explore different behaviors to see what the user likes, that's not likely to be accepted well by people because that's just not how people are wired. We don't want that. We're mm -hmm. much more likely to accept a, an, an entity or a character that isn't ideal, but it is what it is. It's like, oh, well, that's how, like the way people accept pets or even their Roomba vacuum cleaner. It's like, oh, well, it does that, you know, and we tell stories as to why we just kind of narrate and describe and accept things mm -hmm. or, but if it's all over the place if it's a moving target in terms of behavior people are not happy with that mm -hmm. gotcha this this kind of reminds me of again in your presentation when you were uh, mentioning how a robot could be like my mouth is broken today and then people would forgive um if it wasn't working entirely Right. That was a really big lesson that we discovered, which is that, you know, I think robotics in general is all about attempting to do perfect, dependable, reliable, repeatable behavior. And it's really the opposite of what people want. Of course, again, as I always say, if you're creating a if you're doing a surgical robot, then by all means. Um, but for social interactions, for social context, people don't want that. People want some some combination of uh, 
things being interesting and dependable, but also unexpected. Um, and, and striking that balance and knowing what that balance is for each user in each context, of course, is one of the nicer challenges. So, yes, we found that when when things fail on the robot, if the person is expecting the robot to be perfect, they're not at all tolerant of it. But, for example, when uh, and we always had problems with this mouth because it had a servo motor and it was just it's an old robot. Let's just leave it at that. So um, the mouth wouldn't work. And if you indeed, if, if the robot was, say, at the very beginning, my mouth is not working today, then people were incredibly forgiving. They would just say, oh, it's okay. You know, my leg doesn't work. That's why we're together <laughs> after all. And and then it's fine. And then after that, the robot can have other failures as well, but it's okay. As opposed to if it sets itself up like, you know, I'm here and I'm an expert at such and such and I'm going to help to, you know, get you to do so and so. Well, now the setup and the expectations are entirely different mm-hmm. and hard to meet. Definitely. Now, changing topic a little bit, for socially assistive robotics, how does this relate to entrepreneurship or how can entrepreneurs build robots for social assistance? Well, I first of all, thank you for asking that because I wish that a lot more people would think about social assistive robotics or in general assistive technology. So I think mm. I just have to pop up a level and take this opportunity to say that the vast majority of work in robotics today is about automation, which is replacing human work. And we really need to think more about enhancing human abilities because people have to do something for various reasons. Economic is the obvious one, but the, the bigger one is actually the will to live. If you don't have something that you are doing is your meaning in life, then you don't live very long. So from the perspective of uh, what people can do, I mean, I think now the more robots people are putting into human context, the more the the social part comes in. But once you combine social and goals, you go into social assistive. So I think there are tremendous opportunities. I mean, all we need to do is look at those care gaps, right? You know, healthcare is, well, it's just a huge challenge. That's a polite way of putting it. Um, so there's a lot of work to do there. And of course, if you combine this with, you know, the big data boom and machine learning, there's just endless opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I think everyone who's really smart should come and work for my, my startup embodied in Pasadena in California. But mm-hmm. other than that, if you're not going to do that, at least by all means, go out there and uh, I would say look around and see these large gaping needs out there because those also constitute markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so people tend to look very narrowly. Um, and there's just this obsession with clicks and entertainment. Um, and I'm sorry, but that's just not very deep. Like, you know, I, as I tell everyone, when you're 90 or 100 or whatever the life expectancy will be in a little while and you're looking back, what do you want your life's impact to be? More ads? Think about it. Yeah. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on how to look as well. Ah, so that's a really good question. Um, one way to look, of course, is, you know, close to home. So, you know, look at what your grandmother's having trouble with or, you know, a friend or a sister who has some challenge, Right. Another way is, you know, go volunteer. Um, so I think that's always the best way. It seems really simple, but it's very obvious. Um, and I might throw in the fact that, you know, there's plenty of literature to show that when people actually go spend time helping someone, they live longer. So even if you're totally selfish and just want to live longer, go help someone. Um, but I find that the really hard questions happen that way. So when people go out of the lab and actually just go into the real world and say, how can we do this one thing better, whatever it is. Like, you know, I was talking to Rujina Baichi, one of the most senior researchers in robotics today, and she was saying, well, you know, she's in her 80s and she has trouble opening jars. 
because, you know, strength and coordination loss with age, even with perfectly, you know, relatively able bodied people. So now what? Um, And of course, you know, she's able to come up with an entire set of research topics out of that. Like how might you come up with some force augmentation with exoskeletons, et cetera. There's a great example. Go hang out with your grandma, with your grandpa, with, you know, kid with autism next door, because now it's one in 45 to 68. So you can't miss, you know, all this need Um, or anything else. Obesity is another great one. Um, Risky life choices. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't stop enumerating. The numbers are huge. So I think it's very hard to find. It's very easy to find these problems. It's hard to make real progress, but it's very satisfying. Um, It's definitely the case that if you want to just write another simple app, that's going to go a lot faster. But I think that's the whole point is to to get yourself over the needs to do something really quickly and actually do something meaningful. Thank you. And that concludes today's interview. As always, you can find more information and all our past episodes on robohub.org forward slash podcast, where you can also learn about our Patreon campaign, through which you, our listeners, can help us to create even more exciting and engaging content by becoming our patrons. Every dollar helps, so if you can spare a few dollars a month, check out our campaign at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Socialize with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.